when there are things that I experience in the world that I don't have language for in Christianity, um, I hope to be able to develop a little more multilingualism, to be able to express some divine language in other ways. Hi, you're listening to Don't Repeat This, a podcast filled with conversations that you probably shouldn't be having at the dinner table. I'm Nate. I'm Gail. And unfortunately, Vicky was abducted by aliens and we're actively on trying to, <laughs> trying to figure out how to get her back. <laughs> no, you know said, what? She has to do work today. We were missing West Coast Vicky and we figured we have some other friends who live on the West Coast. And considering our topic today, uh, which was going to be deconstructing from evangelicalism, we had some friends that we were having a fantastic conversation with the other night, and we thought, hmm, you know what? This might be a good chance to bring them in. So want to introduce you to Callie and Dave, our friends from the West Coast. Hello. Welcome. Hi. Thank you so Thanks much. for having us. Thank you. Yeah, for thank you for I like conversations you can't have at the dinner table. Oh, those are the best conversations to have. (laughs) All the people who like conversations you can't have at the dinner table always end up in a family room somewhere out of sight where they can finally have these conversations away from all the people that are going to get angry at them for the fact that they just really want to talk about this stuff. So, Oh, yeah. For sure. Yeah. Such a relief to get away from the formality. Yeah. So this is one of our spots. And... um, I think I'm going to just dive in with, so a friend of mine last year wrote a Facebook status and I felt very called out after reading it, but I thought it would be a perfect intro to this topic. Um, So here was what he had to say. He's like, there's no group more obsessed with evangelicalism than former evangelicals. Um, And I felt the need to respond on the spot. I was like, I think some of us have deep scars from what we went through to come out the other side and not be evangelical and anger sometimes wrongly perceived as bitterness or purposely by evangelicals to shut you up is a stage of grief. And that was my thought, but someone else jumped in and I think what they had to say was even was just so insightful. And I thought that's probably why I really enjoy this conversation today. They said white evangelicalism is a powerful and pernicious, pernicious, yes, pernicious, pernicious, pernicious force in U.S. society and one that has assumed greater and greater power while its opponents were being dismissed as alarmist. Ex-evangelicals have more proximity to it through family members and longtime friends and are more likely to have directly experienced its considerable violence. So what looks like obsession might be something else. So that quote just kind of got me thinking um, about why this topic might be close to my heart might be something we all end up discussing often when we when we chat because our circles of people that we see all the time um we yeah it's hard to kind of get away from it right like it plays such a big role in society and we definitely have that up close front row seat to what it looks like right like yeah i mean background real quick um gail you you come from an evangelical environment right or background yes um and i come I come from uh, evangelicalism as well. Um, and that's part of why we decided that Callie and Dave would be a, a good uh, couple to have in this conversation because both of you come from that background as well, right? Oh, for sure. Right. Yeah, from birth. Yeah, pretty much uh, out of the hospital, into the pew. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, Same. evangelical and you know, specifically charismatic evangelical yeah. for me. Yeah, and not... 
not like heavily charismatic at all the time, but sometimes. So mostly like mild, but yeah, I mean, we've, uh, I think didn't really have a choice. You know, you, you got saved before kindergarten or something was wrong with you. And, um, and, and you definitely got saved multiple times. Well, oh yeah. Well, oh, yeah. You gotta be sure. yeah. <laughs> in case it didn't stick. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, you know, even raised our children as young ones in that. And, uh, I remember my daughter, um, I was told by her teacher that she was going up to the altar every week to get saved again. I was like, oh no, <laughs> what's going wrong? What are you teaching? But, but now I understand because now that we're out of it, we've learned so much more about it, really, honestly. Yeah. You get such a different perspective as an outsider than when you're in the middle of something. Like you don't always see what's in front of you when you're in it. I know like mm-hmm. for me, the comparison would probably be the 20 year marriage I was in that I'm out of. It was something mm. that until I got out of it and had distance, I was, you know, it gave a completely dis- different perspective than when you're in the middle. Like I, I compared myself to, um, a lobster in a pot of boiling water, just talking about yeah. that marriage and how I wasn't aware of how it was harming me, even though it was a really unhealthy thing. Um, but I see evangelicalism a bit like that in the sense that when you're in it, there's certain effects of it that you're just completely oblivious to that when you're outside of it, all of a sudden there's things you're like, oh, wow, like how did I, how did I not notice that? Like, how did I not realize mm-hmm. that was a part of my whole process, you know? And I think that's part of what, what he would describe as the obsession the original poster, you know, it's, Mm. you, you're so, um, it's like not seeing the forest for the trees, right? Because you are just a part of it. It's the air you breathe. It's so normal. And then once you get out, you can see all of that harm. You can see all of the manipulation, all of the control, all of the trauma that you had to just kind of brush aside and pretend wasn't there and have all that cognitive dissonance and, you know, in order to survive in order, in order to keep that um, worldview intact. Right. Yeah. It really is um, a very effective echo chamber. Um, And, you know, we said about cognitive dissonance, you know, I didn't, I didn't even know what that was when I was, you know, uh, dealing with it. Right in church and to, to step back now it's, it's, it's been years now. Um, we've, our last Sunday at, at our church was probably three to four years ago. Yeah. That was early 2017. Um, and it, it definitely took a while because that was the framework, um, for life. Like it's, you know, my, <clears throat> like my, my mom, for example, she was raised Catholic and, uh, left Catholicism in her twenties. Um, so she kind of had, you know, she made a choice as an adult, to um, look at, you know, she became part of the evangelical church. Choice, yeah. You know, when you're when you're always in it, I think from a young age, and you know nothing else, it's just as much part of your reality as you know, learning to speak or learning to walk, or mm. it's just yeah, it's your, it's your framework. Um, so <clears throat> stepping out of that, and um, then feeling like there's this, you know, period because you know, we instantly go to well, I got to find another group where I can, you know, talk with like-minded people. And a lot of those same, uh, I guess that same mentality of needing, needing others to have and, you know, and work these things out with is really important. Um, and so running away from evangelicalism only to then land in, you know, ex-evangelical circles, um, which some of which had, you know, similar uh, Dynamics. challenges. Yeah. 
Because they hadn't actually um, fully deconstructed the, all of the harmful dynamics, the toxic dynamics that that they had been in, because it's their it's everything they knew. So they just kind of took that same paradigm and shifted yeah. it to another group. Yeah. So it it um, it's been interesting just getting out of all of it and it makes it almost. Yeah, extra tricky to find to find your bearings afterwards and to find out how to how to heal with people who can understand but not recreate, you know, while you're still trying to undo yes. the toxic effects of what you've gone through. How to not yeah. how to not repeat it, you know? Right. Yeah. And and being okay with being a wanderer, like for the yeah. first time ever in my life. Because, you know, I was always um always had to be certain, at least to to a, a reasonable extent of what I believed in, you know, my faith, um, you know, was strong, you know, it was really just now I know choosing to believe a set of principles, um, and, and not, not allowing myself to ever question or challenge them. Um, but then to all of a sudden be basically in the wilderness, you know, spiritually, if you will, um, was a really, really scary place because you lose, you, a, you, you know, if we lost like, you know, family and i'm using air quotes right now you know that was our church that we, we, we saw every week you know all of these dozens of people that we would yeah since dave was five the same community for him oh wow yeah for myself it was my entire adult life so i think i was that i was in one community that i really poured myself into so it was almost two decades but wow from five years old that's five years old. yeah that's the family the structure kind of the the regularity um, of just, you know, and then, and then that's just kind of ripped away. Um, yes, you've got community, you've got worldview, you've got rhythms, traditions, you know, just basically what you, our whole lives were built around. Yeah, it's a huge thing. And you, I, to zone in on one specific uh, thing, Dave, you were mentioning certainty and that change away from needing to be certain. Mm -hmm. So I guess right. one of the thoughts that I had was, and I would love to hear all of our thoughts on this one, but maybe like as a question, I'd love to throw out to all of us would be like, what has changed in your life um, or how has your life changed since deconstructing from evangelicalism? Meaning like, I guess maybe which, maybe I could take it in the direction of beliefs because uh like how that's changed your the way you look at life or worldview because i know if i ask how has your life changed since deconstruction obviously our communities have completely changed so the people yeah. we're around and the activities we do have completely changed but maybe just zoning in on a way of looking at life or how has that shifted and made a difference in how you how you live in the world since deconstruction how you view things how you view people or what so when you brought up certainty that popped into my mm -hmm. head as a, as a great example dave um mm -hmm. if i were to throw that to each of you what would you say how have things changed in your life how has it impacted you um all right i'll i'll kick it off um so for me um i think where my escape from evangelicalism has kind of most predominantly um fleshed out is in um my approach to people who adhere to other religions or to who, would, who hold to no religions um no religion at all and part of that is because in evangelicalism and fundamentalism which is where i kind of started um i was essentially born um in in fundamentalism uh mm -hmm. i mean not not really my family 
joined a fundamentalist church when I was five years old. Mm-hmm. And then um, when I was in my early twenties, we, we moved on to a larger evangelical church. Um, but they they essentially have a lot of the same tenets, the same belief systems. And one of those belief systems is a belief in um, hell as something that is um, eternal, everlasting, unending uh, torment for people who don't believe in Jesus. And mm-hmm. yeah, um, living that kind of a life, there was, it, there was this fear that all of my friends, anyone I came in contact with, they were all going to hell. And I had to do what I could to um, prevent that from happening. So I had to quote unquote, share the gospel with them. I had to evangelize. Um, But that also manifested in guilt because I hated what people might think of me. If I were to just start springing all of this stuff on them, like, yeah. Um, my, my friends on my street, my public school friends, I didn't really want to talk to them about Jesus because I was, you know, and then of course at church, they would say, oh, you're just ashamed of, of the gospel. And I'm like, I don't, that's right. what I thought. Looking back, I realized I, I wanted to have friendships that I could actually have fun in, um, mm-hmm. where it wasn't based on me trying to convert them to my religion. Yeah. Um, and I think that's probably the area that I, I find most um, has most changed. I've also explored other religions and found ways to kind of um, not necessarily syncretize, but but find divine language in religions that don't that language that doesn't exist in in Christianity. Yeah, um, yeah, integrate. Mm-hmm. And I found that to be beautiful. And so mm-hmm. when there are things that I experience in the world that I don't have language for in Christianity, um, mm-hmm. I hope to be able to develop a little more multilingualism um, to be able to express some divine language in other ways. So uh, yeah, for me, that's probably where, uh, where it manifested. I'm going to piggyback off of you, babe. I definitely mm-hmm. relate that, that whole concept of hell. I mean, when you mentioned that, I just saw you, Dave and Callie nodding your heads. Cause I think that's, I mean, that is a bit a bedrock for all of evangelicals yeah. that, you know, that's why you're called an evangelical. Your job is to evangelize to the world and to make sure everybody mm-hmm. knows the gospel. And, um, just that, that constant awareness of everyone around me going to hell and thinking through how do I, how do I make use of every moment of my life to make sure people are not going to be burning in hell forever? And, I, and coming out of it, I think one of the real, realizations was um, you kind of ignore other things for the afterlife, meaning that, you know, um, I'm trying to think of an example in here, but um, we're so... Okay, the, the idea of evangelizing to kids, take that for as a topic or just a thought yeah. uh, that that notion of, well, am I being manipulative? Because the, the stats are showing they're going to come to Jesus if you talk to them really young about God. And I was a Sunday school teacher. I led camps for kids. I did VBS. I did so many evangelical things where they just kind of, you know, reminded me that this is your window of, window of opportunity to reach them. And on the outside, we're talking about looking at it, you know, now that we're out of it, it looks very manipulative. It looks, um, mm-hmm. you know, brainwashing. Uh, there's a lot of things it looks like, but it, I would ignore all of that because the greatest good was making sure they come to know Jesus. So then therefore mm-hmm. these tactics I'm using, I mean, really, am I showing love to these kids? Yes. If in that context, when your, your baseline is, 
they need to not burn in hell forever and their best chance is if you get them young, then that looks like a good thing. So I feel like the end goals of just focusing on hell made me very unaware of how I was moving through this life in ways that were abusive to kids, toxic. Uh, it's hard even to say yeah. that out loud because that wasn't my intention. I know I was a youth pastor. Mm -hmm. You too, you had children's ministry. We did a lot of the same stuff. You were also a children's pastor. It's stuff we had a good heart for what we were doing, but when you're on the outside, yeah. So I definitely interact with all of my, all of the people in my life who, who have differences in beliefs now are no longer enemies of of the way, the truth, and the life. They're no longer outsiders. They're no longer on a path of darkness. All these kind of ideas yeah. I attach to them as people, meaning like the prime goal was to make sure they were, they, they were in the truth. And that truth mm -hmm. was what I believed. That's gone. And it's opened up uh, an appreciation for everyone in a totally yeah. different way that I find beautiful. I have so much more love for the people around me. The other thing has been the shift for me from... Um, beliefs to values and it came up i think for me where it came up was when i started dating nate my sister was the one who asked me about it and she was like you know gail you've changed your beliefs and so i'm just you know you and nate kind of match up with your beliefs um and but like what if your beliefs change again though like sort of how does where does that leave you if your beliefs keep shifting uh and i think in life like you, Dave, you were mentioning certainty, evangelicalism, shifting your beliefs is a big deal because you I have to believe what you believe is right. You don't question it. You got to be sure of it and be confident and you stick with that. And so it's it, it doesn't necessarily provoke the change and growth that you might need as a normal yeah. process of life. So I'm like, yeah, what if I keep shifting in beliefs? That's a novel concept for me because what I grew up in was like, you stick to what you believe. And then I think my answer to my sister, which she was happy about and was like, kind of reassured it was actually Nate and I share the same values. Like right. my beliefs might shift, but like, even when I think of what values I hold that might have stayed the same from when I was evangelical, loving others, um, kindness, uh, mm. caring for the marginalized in society, um, you know, fighting against oppression. Those are things that matter to me when I was evangelical. Like I'm not, I think when we discussed this topic, all of us saw that we still had hearts that, you know, fought for good things when we were evangelical too. It wasn't like we were just trying to convert everyone. We didn't care. We really did have good qualities or values, yeah. but it, some things just superseded everything. And those va common values, I guess I have a shift now from beliefs being the superior thing by which to dissect. And now it's like, what kind of values do you have? And and where can I connect with you on? And that becomes so much more important is the values that we share. And it helps yeah. me to still connect to evangelicals that who are part of my family and friends, but and it helps me to connect everywhere, you know, just through those mm -hmm. yeah. rather than shared beliefs, which are kind of different things. Definitely. What about you guys? What were how we're at? We got, haven't gotten there. No, I was just going to say, uh, to borrow a line that I uttered more than a few times in my evangelical days, that's some good preaching, Gail. <laughs> actually, taking some good notes in that. I, I love that beliefs to values shift. That's really... Yeah, it makes all the difference. And I think uh, one thing you touched on with hell and, and the intentions is even though, you know, we believe this was what was best, it was also within a paradigm that was so toxic. So for instance, a family member, a close family member um, asked my daughter when she was 13, um, so do you still believe in Jesus? And, you know, it just kind of came out of nowhere. And she's like, well, I don't know. Um, 
Or no, and she, we, start, she been, started with, are you still going to heaven? Right. And we've been out of church for a couple of years at this point. Yeah. And she's like, my daughter's like, well, I don't, I think so. I mean, if there's a heaven, I think, you know, I'm a, I try to do my best and be a good person. She's like, well, you know, it takes more than just being a good person. You got to mm. believe in Jesus and you, you know, all, kind of created these little rules, you know, that we're so familiar with, but you know, they're actually quite artificial. And my, my reaction to that, now having been out of that at that point, out of the evangelical way of thinking at that point, was this person who loves my daughter was okay with worshiping and, uh, you know, glorifying as the most, the, the epitome of love, someone who she thought would send my daughter to eternal hell at that point. My 13-year-old, who is really just a sweet, wonderful person, you know, and, and she knows that about her, but she would be okay with her, you know, she, she would be settled and think it was right for her to go to eternal talk, you know, torture if she didn't say these words, if she didn't believe right. like her. So I think even though, you know, we believe that that was the truth and so we just went with it, um, it's also just quite... Um, shocking when you think about it from the outside of like well if you don't believe what i believe exactly you don't say the things that i think are important you know that to to say within my religious context then oh well i guess you're just going to be tortured like right. that you can't really love on a a very um authentic level with that kind of mentality you lose some of your empathy you lose some of your um ability to uh to accept people and to see them for who they are and really care about them because you know anybody could just go to hell and then they're gone and you know they didn't make it to heaven and you're supposed to be happy there and you're supposed to just move on and accept it yeah i i'm, I'm glad you brought up empathy because this is something you and i were talking about um a month or so ago i'm just kind of realizing you know i looking back at <clears throat> dave the first 40 years of his life um, and just how not empathetic of a person that I was, yeah. I didn't even really understand how to be empathetic. And I, and I, and I was kind of arrived at, I, I know a large part of that was the, the, my health theology, mm -hmm. um, the belief that, you know, everyone around me who didn't say this specific, um, you know, magic prayer um, was unfortunately, despite how amazing or incredible they were, maybe even better than I, um, going to be sentenced to hell, you know, for eternity and, you know, tortured. Um, and to have to just kind of live with that and accept that as truth, I think makes you a very unempathetic person because you have to be able to separate yourself from the reality that you believe that they're going to, they're going to be tortured for eternity. Um, and still somehow, you know, you have to, like it, it, it consider dis that right to right. consider that just it, it disconnects you from you know this reality that you supposedly believe that's going to happen to them mm -hmm. um and i think as a result you know i know for me it just it, it removes empathy and so empathy as a general practice was just not and i i think it in general just isn't something evangelicals are very good at and health theology, I think, has a lot to do mm -hmm. and, with that. I mean, you can, they can try. It's not that they're not, they don't have any empathy, but there's just a depth that's missing. I think for me, that was one area that changed. I definitely grew in my compassion. Um, 
And it was the ability to question, to critically think, to um, have freedom of thought um, and, and not necessarily come to a conclusion, like not always have the answers, but be okay with eliminating certain things as possibilities like hell. So, it's, you know, it's not that I'm, I know for certain what happens after we die, but I can know for certain that a loving God couldn't do that. So, yeah, so the, not consistent with. the God that is, was preached to me um, either just doesn't exist or is not who they say they are. So, um, so freedom of thought was a big one. Empathy is a big one. Um, I think just um, more solidarity, hmm. less uh, pretentious community and more real like um being there for one another that's that's what we're finding we're building you know really oh, understanding you and belonging mm. I, when you were saying that i was making me think of someone saying that now that they no longer pray um what mm. they've replaced that with and that was mm -hmm. fascinating it's something i had never thought of before because they were like they were used to when someone told them what was going wrong saying I'll pray for you going home at night saying, yes, saying yes. a thing to, to Sky Daddy and then feeling like they did their part. And I yeah. mean, I, I remember being told all the time, like, don't diminish prayer. Uh, once I was rebuked over something about something where I was like, no, we need to take action on this. And the person had told mm -hmm. me, no, just pray about it. And it was actually a situation that put my life in jeopardy. Um, and I was like, I can't ju like the, just pray about it. I've been doing that for a couple of years and this is getting worse. Um, it's mm -hmm. put, putting me in more danger and there they would they had said to me you know don't don't downplay the power of prayer so just to show how much that you know felt like it was so superior to every kind of action you could take mm -hmm. and now without the praying going to bed and praying at night feeling like i did my part it's like well if you told me something that's going wrong in your life i have to ask is there something i should be doing to yes. to the situation authentically to be helpful to you to like i can't just dismiss all of any part i have in it with i'll just go to bed at night say a prayer for you and then yeah. i'm taking care of looking after you when i haven't done any anything with regard to addressing anything so that i i never thought mm -hmm. of it that way before uh, that mm -hmm. eliminating because i know prayer is seen as a very enriching experience and i'm not i'm not i guess i'm not here to say it's not but i never considered before that taking that out could add a dimension of depth in the sense of asking yourself mm -hmm. what do i do now what is right. it that I'm doing to, to be what you were saying, Callie, about just uh, a depth or an authenticity in relationships with people around yes. That's what it made me, it, made, it popped in my head when you said that. I was like, oh, that was an interesting thought. Yeah, yeah. for as much as evangelicals, you know, we used to, you know, talk about being <clears throat> the hands and feet of Jesus, right? We've heard that a million times. Um, you know, this, I'll pray about it, sure, cop out <laughs> to actually taking any meaningful action, you know, actually be Jesus to somebody. Ooh. True. And I don't mean to say that people, I just maybe want to throw this out there. I know both can be done. I know you yeah. can say, I will pray for you. And actually, I, I've known a lot of evangelicals in my life who have been hands and feet of Jesus, to use it, a very evangelical terminology. Yeah. But there have been a lot of people who are evangelical who still play those kind of roles in my life. So I don't want to dismiss that. But it, it did it did make me think of how many times I wouldn't have felt that emptiness because I was praying about it, that I had a responsibility to it in my own personal life. I don't want to put that on yeah. everyone else. Um, and I just, want, I just want to caveat real quick because our experience has been largely white evangelicalism. I want to make sure that that's clear that um, I mean, yes, we had like a multi-ethnic 
background for our church, but it was led almost entirely by white men. White yeah. evangelism, so, right? Yeah, by white men. Yes, men and that's a, mm-hmm. that is a very common evangelical thread, which is a good critique of evangelicalism. Is why is that? Why and how yeah. does that influence the belief systems held by evangelicals? Yeah. That white this, evangelical men lead the conversation, and they're the most privileged group in society, and they're interpreting mm-hmm. scriptures written by people who were not mm-hmm. the dominant people in society. And how does that change even how mm-hmm. you understand the texts and what yeah. you're teaching? You know, and not just, just the, yeah, and not just the texts, but also the way that your church functions. Um, mm-hmm. Black mm-hmm. Black evangelical churches tend to function and emphasize things that um, are often de-emphasized or um, taught very differently in white right. evangelical spaces. So they, they don't right. look the same. There are some similarities, and I think some of the same toxicities exist in both black evangelical and white evangelical sure. churches. But I think part of that, and what once the, something that's crucial to understand, is that whiteness is a hell of a drug, and yeah. its power, when coupled with um, evangelical teachings, um, yeah is uh, it's it's insane and i think one thing that that stands out to me is the that the marriage of um these these beliefs and these ideologies which are already quite toxic with mm-hmm. the toxicity of whiteness and um as my friend carrie Connolly puts it pseudo supremacy because it's it's yes. not real right. um but white pseudo supremacy yeah. um that marriage is dangerous because Christianity and a lot of the tenets in Christianity and, and a lot of the things that we find in the, in the Bible lean towards um, lifting up the oppressed, you know, the, the, the language, the poetic language in a lot of the, the, the texts um, come from the perspective of an oppressed, uh, oppressed people groups come from the perspective of, um, yeah, for, come from the perspective of, of oppressed people groups. And when that then is um, put into the the teachings of the oppressors, um, it becomes incredibly dangerous. And, and the whole narrative shifts in terms of how those teachings are presented. And actually, often the, the plain meaning of scripture gets clouded. I think that's, we know we're talking about stepping out and noticing things. One of the things that has fascinated me lately is reading and hearing Bible texts um, spoken of and read from people from the margins. And things that were, like, obvious totally flew over my head. I'm just going to give a drop a quick example because we went on the topic of hell. Um there's that parable of Abraham and Lazarus in hell. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I had heard someone talking about it for the first time from the perspective that this text had nothing to do with hell. It was about how um, it was about people who it was about reversing that dynamic of the person who had nothing on earth all of a sudden yeah. having this value and being seen and esteemed for who they really were. And and, and 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 the person in the chasm was still wanting Lazarus to fetch some things and was still looking down on them saying can you get tell him to get me just a drop of water you know and and the the conclusion being like you know some people are just so set in their oppressive thought process that even you know even in the afterlife it was still with them this idea that they were superior in their heads and this whole there was just so many things in that text that were dealing with oppressive structures that were dealing with um 
you know, like some people will quote Martin Luther King and they will use that. People who are espousing those pseudo white supremacy views will yeah. use Martin Luther King and they will ignore the real depth of his teaching that kind of challenges and calls out the way they're setting things up. And yeah. it's frustrating. And so in that text, in that Bible passage, he's like, can you go to my family? Can you go tell my family about this place so they don't end up here? And as evangelicals, we take that and go, this is a message about telling your family about Jesus so they don't go to hell. Meanwhile, I'd never thought of the, the uh, how the overall theme of the text was dealing with oppression and the idea that if you can't listen to you know like we have resources that sort of uh can call can help teach us about uh oppression and oftentimes people will ignore all of that and we still engage them in it and hope we're going to convince them that you know what they're doing is unhelpful but it the, the person was sort of pointing out that sometimes we're stuck in not wanting to listen and that mm -hmm. You know, they said even if Moses and what Moses told them had not convinced them, why do you think coming back from the dead would make a difference? Meaning like some people are really set in their oppressive structures and they yeah. don't want to hear. And they were tying that into just that, that dynamic of how do we deal with racist people we know and, Ooh. and wanting to help get them out of that mind frame, but almost taking the time to recognize when people are a little too far gone that we're wasting our time arguing for no reason. And they do have the tools they need in front of them, but they don't want to hear it. Um, I think I had never seen a passage like that told in that way. And it was, when I looked at it from that angle, I was like, well, this is a very obvious meaning to this passage but i had only ever heard it in an evangelical context which stripped it actually just stripped out oh, it's really mean. deeper value and meaning and turned it into go save your friends so they don't end yeah. up in hell and i had never read oppression into that text i had never understood any of the the practical meaning of how you could use that in real life um, um i have another example of that and then i actually have a question that i want to ask you guys because we only have a few minutes left but um, one, one other example that um, I think struck me fairly recently um, was the, when Jesus saw the, uh, the old widow who was um, giving her last two pennies, essentially. I'm going to kind of paraphrase the story, mm -hmm. but um, she, she walked up to the, to the temple and in the collection plate uh, dropped the last, you know, last two pennies that she had. And meanwhile, the Pharisees and the, 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 the law keepers or the law givers at the at the um uh, at the temple mm -hmm. were dumping in what equated like hundreds of dollars into the collection mm -hmm. plate and jesus lifted her up as i'm going to use the evangelical um interpretation lifted her up as this example exemplar of generosity um mm -hmm. kind of to say like this is what sacrificial giving looks like yeah and it wasn't until recently, my current pastor, our current pastor, actually, Gail, uh, attends the church as well. Um, and uh, she, I think it was last year or whenever it was, um, opened that text up to us in a different way. Um, because often churches will use that text to kind of convince their, their people to give. Um, like, mm -hmm. see if, you know, like if this woman can donate, uh, everything she has, you can, you know, reach deep into yes. your pockets. It's and used to, to coerce people into giving, right? It's like, yeah. give your, yeah. even yeah. if you're strapped for cash, everything. you have nothing left, right. just pour yourself out, give everything right. you have. Yeah, yep. exactly. And so, um, what, uh, what our, our new pastor, um, kind of opened that text up in a different way and said like what's more consistent with what we see of jesus and his relationship to the temple and his relationship to the law keepers is that he was highlighting the inequity of the system mm 
So he didn't lift her up as an example of sacrificial giving. He chose, he highlighted her as kind of a rebuke to the, the Pharisees, the law keepers to say like, this is somebody who should be benefiting from the temple. This is somebody who the temple should be looking after. But here you are hoarding all of this money to what? Build a nicer building? Um, to fill your coffers? When this woman should be receiving and not be coerced and forced into donating everything she has left. Like she's the one you need to look after. Like instead of seeing that passage as a lifting her up as you should be like her, the passage is really should the more obvious meaning should be look at how shameful this behavior is in a church that you can have people so strapped for cash, not being looked after and have this sort of grave and inequality going on before everyone. Mm -hmm. And she's not being dealt with and look what's happening. That's good. Yeah. Quick caveat though. um, And I remember uh, the church that I had had previously worked for. They had had some conversations about like, you know, if if you don't have this ability, don't don't give or whatever. Um, but you know, ten percent is ten percent. You know, it's not really. You know, if that's that's like the the minimum that God requires of us, and and you know, you can find it in your budget. Learn, learn to budget well so that you can donate ten percent to the church. Um, but then you know they would they would kind of work around that for people who were living in under uh, uh, under the poverty line and try to find ways to sort of make the, make it more palatable. Um, but the thing is, it's not built into your theology. Right. Um, whereas if you look Already. at a passage, yeah, if you look at a passage like that and interpret it in that way and see that message as being that which that which Jesus was teaching, mm-hmm. then it forces you to look at your systems and to see how how those inequalities are bearing out. Well, I can give an example even from our life. You know, there was a time when we were uh, really struggling after the market crashed because we got caught trying to build a house when the real estate market crashed. And so we had a whole lot of money invested in that, that we, you know, lost and we had debts then all of a sudden because of it. And, you know, because the the banks still wanted their money. So, um, so we were in a tough situation with two very small children, me home with them because they were still very little. And um, that was, of course, part of my, my upbringing. And Dave did have a job, thankfully, but we were strapped. Definitely. Very, very strapped. And so we had always done our 10%. We, we were supposed, you know, always felt like that was what we had to do. And suddenly we found ourselves going, we don't have it. It's not there. It's either, you know, the church or the bankruptcy court. And um, so we stopped giving right. for a while. Um, it still went bad for a while. But, you know, I mean, if we were, if we were in testimony time right now, I'd be saying, <laughs> and after we stopped, <laughs> that <laughs> came through. <laughs> oh. The truth is, that's when Dave found, uh, was able to get a better job. Our finances turned around. Um, we were able to get out of debt. Uh, because um, we weren't giving all of the money that we needed to put towards those things to the church. We were able to get back on our feet. Right. And, and, and even, like I said, better things happened. Dave's job got better. And, you know, so it, all those things they tell you, if you stop, God can't bless you. And, you know, oh, man. That, that's not what happened. The it role the of, and the role of testimonies, what you, I'm, I'm, 
when you're talking about how they give these stories, you know, give to God and this will happen. I mean, I had so many stories hammered into me about, you know, pray for healing and God will, you know, help someone. And I think one of those faith shifts for me too, where I saw the opposite happen of what they, then what they told me would happen. My dad was, uh, he was in a coma. He didn't, he didn't wake up after surgery for months. He was unresponsive and everybody was telling us like, if somebody's not responsive for a couple of months, chances are they're not going to wake up like statistically and scientifically, you know, and then I had like the pray God can do anything and heal. So I was in prayer that my dad would be healed. And then I have a reverse testimony, just like you guys. I mean, I got heartbroken from praying for my dad to wake up. So I stopped eventually after, after, cause everybody would come up to me at church. We're praying for your dad. How are things going? And then I got fed up of having that discussion of he's, there's no change. And finally, yeah. when I gave up prayer, uh, a little while after that, you know, took him off the prayer list, didn't want to be hounded by any of this anymore. My dad miraculously woke up and I was like, wait a second, where are these stories in church? Yeah. <laughs> these no, are first it, testimonies, it, but like that whole yeah. hanging over your head, if you do X, Y, Z, God will do X, Y, Z. Uh, those were big faith shifts for me to see, wait a second, these formulas that they're spelling out for me in reality were working in reverse of what they were saying. And they, and they were used to keep me in line and scare me like, mm -hmm this is how God works. And it was totally not how things happened. And when I well, testimony time is a manipulative tactic. I mean, we could go a long way into all the tactics mm -hmm. we've realized, but it, because nobody is going to stand up and say, and when I stopped praying, or if they do, yeah. they're going to twist it in a way, you know, to make it sound like this was God telling them, you know, they needed to be quiet or, you know, that you find yeah. some way right to make it sound like this was still God's plan and still God's way of doing things. And, and nobody's going to stand up during testimony time and say, I prayed and I prayed and I believed and I believed and it didn't happen. Right. Yeah. Nobody yeah. stands up to tell those stories. No, it's only things that sort of confirm the beliefs that are already there. And that kind of deeply, mm -hmm. more deeply entrench you in that whole system of belief to begin with. And yet those stories are more common. That's yeah. the other thing yeah. we discovered that the story where we prayed and we prayed out. and then right. we got Same. the opposite of what we prayed Same. for. Yeah. That's more common. When yeah. I told my story to my mentor, actually, who was also evangelical, and I said, this is what happened with my dad. And I was perplexed. I was looking for her to come up with some sort of explanation on why this worked in reverse. Her answer was, the same thing happened to me this summer with my mom. I stopped praying and God answered. And I was expecting her to set me straight. And she just sort of said, I had the same experience as you. I don't know what to say. Like, just in terms of yes. how common. Uh, yeah, I totally echo that. It's amazing how, and we don't tell those stories, but... Mm -hmm. Because they don't fit with yeah. what we're told yeah, no. we should believe. This is true. They're, yeah, they're definitely no. a threat to kind of the narratives about uh, the the omnipotence and yeah. you know mm -hmm. the yeah. goodness of yeah. God. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. And we do have all have those experiences, but we just we gaslight ourselves about them. You know, yeah. there's the mm -hmm. there's the whole uh, everything works out, everything's for a reason. God will never give you more than you can. I mean, there's God so is always many, in control. God yep. is in control. Yeah. God is sovereign and he's good. So therefore, whatever happens, doesn't matter because it's meant to be, it'll turn out for your good or whatever, all those narratives. So we just dismiss our concerns. We just gaslight ourselves. Oh, okay. Well, I guess it's still good, even though it's horrible. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So I think this kind of opens up a much larger conversation about the importance of, um, of evangelicalism in this country and um, what it means. I mean, you know, 
all of us in this conversation are former evangelicals. And as we look around the landscape of the, of the country, we see that evangelicals, while being a numerical minority in the country, are so influential and so powerful. Um, and I, I think that that conversation is one that is worth having. Um, but I think we'll probably have to bring that up in another episode. I think that does it for today's show. So please spread the word about the podcast, rate and review us on iTunes, and follow us on social media. We are at Don't Repeat This Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, at Don't Repeat Pod on Twitter, and you can send any long-form feedback to Don't Repeat This Pod at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. I'm Nate. I'm Gail. And Vicky will be back when we rescue her from the aliens. And this has been Don't Repeat This. So, uh, I don't know, maybe don't repeat this stuff at the dinner table. Bye.